The Old Testament reading from Isaiah 29, verses 13 through 19. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with his people, with wonder upon wonder, and their wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us, who knows us, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? Is it not yet a little, a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We rise for the reading of the Holy Gospel. The Holy Gospel is according to St. Mark, the seventh chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. When the Pharisees gathered to Jesus with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And Jesus said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And Jesus said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Well, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Today we continue the sermon series on the book of Ephesians as we talk about who am I or who are we as we continue to explore what God has to say to us about our identity. And so today we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 5 verses 21 through 33 and these words are printed for you in your bulletin so you may follow along as you, as you so desire. St. Paul writes, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, 
and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water in the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is our text. In the name of Jesus Christ, who is our groom, dear fellow bride members of Christ. I often tell this story in sermons that I preach at weddings. It's about a preschooler, and this preschooler was telling her mom what she had learned that day at preschool. And she started telling her mom the story of Snow White. And the youngster was getting toward the end of the story when she asked, and so, mommy, do you know what happened then? Of course, said the mother. Snow White and the prince lived happily ever after. And the little girl quickly corrected her, Oh no, mommy, they got married. That's a pessimistic perspective of marriage. And certainly every marriage has its challenges. But many couples not only weather the storms and the setbacks and the struggles and the squabbles, but despite all of those things, their love and their commitment deepens. Someone has observed happy marriages begin when we marry the ones that we love, and they blossom when we love the ones we marry. Normally, we marry someone that we love and who loves us in return. We wed ourselves to someone who has desirable qualities that attract us to them and them to us. But here's the thing. Christ, our Savior, marries. He marries, borrowing an image from another fairy tale, the ugly stepsister. You see, it's out of an abundance of mercy and grace that Jesus chooses to call us his bride. And that's what we are. We are the bride Christ. And as such, Christ our groom is the head of the bride. Listen to verses 21 through 24 again. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The Greek word for head is kephale. 
This word may be used literally of someone's head, like my own head, or it may be used metaphorically in the sense of rank or hierarchy, as it is used in this text. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, St. Paul uses it in this latter sense as well, to talk about rank or hierarchy when he writes, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. God the Father is the head of Christ. Since God's Son, by means of his incarnation, subordinated himself to the Father. The relationship between God the Father and God the Son provides then the most excellent example of how headship and voluntary submission work without any diminishment of status. It's not like Jesus is less God because he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. It's not like he's less God because he came in the flesh so he might ultimately die for us. No, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all equal in majesty, power, and power. And so, Christ, it says in our text, is superior in rank to his bride. Christ is the head of the church. But his lordship over his bride calls for humility. It calls for sacrifice. It calls for service. It calls for placing the needs and concerns of his bride as his priority. And it calls for voluntary submission on his part. See, being the head of the church, being the head of the bride as Christ is, is not a perk. It's not a privilege. But being head of the bride means sacrifice. C.S. Lewis, commenting on the headship of the husband in the marriage, writes, God has crowned man in the relationship of marriage, bestowing, or should I say inflicting, a certain headship on him. This is a very different coronation. The husband is the head of wife just insofar as he is to her what Christ is to the church. He is to love her as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. This headship, then, is most fully embodied not in the husband that we all wish to be, but in him whose marriage is most like a crucifixion, whose wife receives most and gives least. The sternest feminist need not grudge my sex the crown offered to it, or as a crown of thorns. Did you hear what C.S. Lewis said? He said that when the man is called the head of the wife, what it really is, it's a coronation. It's a, it's a being placed into an office, if you will, of crucifixion, where the husband is called to sacrifice for his wife. And that is also true for Jesus when he is the head of his wife wife, his bride. It calls for sacrifice. And to be led by such a husband who serves and sacrifices for his wife, a wife will gladly yield her will. And that's actually what the word to submit means in our text. It means to yield voluntarily. 
The wife is not forced to follow the leadership of her husband, and the church is not forced to follow the leadership of its groom, Jesus Christ. But the bride willingly submits to the groom because the bride understands the groom loves her, serves her, sacrifices for her, and is crucified for her. And that brings me to point number two in our text. Christ, our groom, loves his bride sacrificially. Verses 25 through 27, St. Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Our groom, Jesus Christ, loves his bride. He loves us. And just think of the love that a, that a groom has for his bride on their wedding day. Here are some quotes of how grooms felt about their bride on their wedding day, which I gleaned from, from the Internet. One groom said of his bride, I was going to marry the love of my life, and nothing could ever feel so right. Another groom said, All of the waiting and planning and the desire to begin my life with her became real in front of me in the form of this stunning woman, I get to call my bride. And then another groom said, but as soon as I turned and saw her, my mind went blank. And all I could think of was, wow. Wow. That's how our groom, Jesus Christ, feels about his bride. That's how he feels about you and me. He never tires of us. He never wishes for a younger, sexier, more attractive bride. His love for his bride never wanes. He looks at his bride, he looks at us, and he thinks, I get to call her my bride. Wow. I saw a Mother Goose in grime or grim cartoon in a newspaper. And in this cartoon, an aged, worn-out Snow White, and I don't know why they always pick on Snow White, but an aged and old white Snow White is doing the ironing while her husband, the former Prince Charming, now overweight and a dumpy sluggard, is sitting in his lazy boy chair with a sports magazine on his lap and a beer in his hand. And the caption under the cartoon reads, Snow White secretly regretted her marriage to her fairy tale hero, formerly known as the Prince. Well, Jesus is our prince. He's our husband. He's our groom, and we're his bride. And he's not some overweight, dumpy sluggard. No, he wore a crown of thorns. He was crucified. He died out of love for the sake of his bride. And he continues serve his bride to this day. Yes, by his sacrificial death, the groom makes his bride holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, says St. Paul. There are several images at work in this text that St. Paul is building upon, and here's two of them. St. Paul has in mind the bridal bath that a bride would take or have prior to her wedding to prepare her for presentation to her groom. 
And St. Paul uses the image of the bridal bath to connect us to the washing of water with the word, to our baptism. The bridal bath is, is in some ways God's way of preparing us, the bride, to be received by the groom. Our baptism, in other words, is the day in which we are wedded to Jesus Christ. It's the day that Jesus Christ makes us prepared to be received by him as he washes away our sin and he forgives us for our sin. And that is why St. Paul can say in our text that the groom presents his bride to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle. So think of it. This is how Jesus, our groom, looks at us, his bride. He loves us. He doesn't see our sin. He looks and he says, wow, I get to call her my bride. And how do you think the bride feels? How do you feel when you know that that's how Jesus looks at you? Do you feel loved? Do you feel valued? You see, Christ never regrets being married to us. Third point Paul makes in our text. Christ, our groom, nourishes and cherishes his bride. Verses 28 and 29, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. I think it goes without saying, but Jesus does not hate himself. In fact, Jesus is the embodiment of love. The Bible says God is love, and Jesus is God in the flesh, and so Jesus is love. And it's this love that he has not only for himself, but it's his love for his bride that moves him to sacrifice himself for his bride. But not only does Jesus, our groom, sacrifice himself for his bride so that his bride might live with him forever, but he also provides for our daily needs. As I was preparing for this message, I stumbled upon a, a website that identified nine things, nine things that every wife needs from her husband. And this was an article written by a man who works with a lot of couples who have gone through all kinds of marital challenges. Let's see if our groom, Jesus Christ, doesn't meet all of these nine and husbands, as I go through this list and comment on it, I pray that the Lord will help us all grow in these areas, especially maybe in those areas where we're in need of some improvement. But you see, this is the way that Christ loves his church. He not only gives up his life for his church, but he cares for her in the nitty-gritty of life. And so the first thing that this man writes and says that every wife needs is a wife needs her husband to be a leader who serves her. True husbandly leadership is born out of strength. It's born out of humility. It's born above all. It's born out of love. And we've just heard in the last couple points I've been making of how our groom, Jesus Christ, 
serves us. He's our Lord and he's our master because he is God. And yet, what is he? He is our servant. He serves or he leads by serving. He loves by giving himself up for his bride. And a man of sacrifice, his sacrifice on the cross. His headship meant crucifixion. And that's why our groom says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Second thing that a wife needs. A wife needs her husband to provide security and stability in the present and the future. That's what Jesus, our groom, does, doesn't he? I mean, he who calmed the storms with a voice, he who overcame Satan, he who rose from the dead, conquering death once and for all, he is the one who is our husband, who is our groom. Our groom assures us in his word that he loves us with an everlasting love. He assures us that eternal life is ours. And he promises us that nothing in all of creation can snatch us out of his hand. Does that not provide us with security and stability for now and forever? The third thing that a wife needs is for her, husband, for her husband to create a home environment where contentment can flourish, that her life inside the marriage is both enjoyable and worthwhile, that her husband actively enjoys spending time with her. Well, St. Paul, of course, speaks to that source of contentment for the bride, doesn't he? He says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. In other words, St. Paul is saying that the Lord, our groom, Jesus Christ, is the source of the bride's contentment. No matter what we face in life, whether we have lots or little, whether we're going through trials and tribulations or we're experiencing the highs of life, we have a sense of contentment knowing that we abide in our groom's love and care. And get a load of this. Our groom enjoys being with his bride. In fact, he dwells with us. I think we have a delightful example of this kind of relationship that Jesus has with us, his bride, when we look at the relationship that he had with Mary and Martha. Remember that time when, Mary, when he goes to visit Mary and Martha and Martha's busy out working in the kitchen and Mary is sitting at his feet and listening to him and, and you know, Martha gets her nose out of joint and she comes to Jesus and says, you know, you should be telling Mary that, that she should be working with me out in the kitchen. And then Jesus says to her, and I like, I like to think that this is a lighthearted thing, that he's not really scolding her. He's just simply saying, few things are really needed. Or indeed, there's really only one thing that's needed, he says. And Mary has chosen that which is better. And it won't be taken away from her. You see, Jesus enjoyed just sitting there in that living room, talking and conversing with Mary. 
and with Martha and with anyone else who he counted as his bride. He enjoys conversing with you and me, of spending time with us. But communication isn't just one way. It's not like he, the husband, speaking orders at us or talking to us and we don't get to speak back. No, in fact, our husband desires, Jesus desires to hear from us. He desires to hear from his bride. He says to us, until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask. Ask me. And you will receive. And your joy will be complete. Fourth thing that a husband or a wife needs from her husband is that a wife needs a husband in whom she can be proud of. Because he is a man of character and faithful to his word. Can you think of someone who is of greater character character than Jesus? Our groom? Can you think of a groom who is more faithful to his word than Jesus? I mean, those who spent time with Jesus daily said of him, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Those who witnessed his ministry of healing and preaching lined up at his door so that Jesus could heal them or their loved ones. And thousands sometimes would go a day or two without food so that they could congregate together to hear him teach. That's a man of character. That's a man of his word. That's our groom. Well, a wife needs her husband who is supportive of her, of her. A wife needs to know that her husband is always on her side. It doesn't mean you always agree with her, but he's always going to be on her side. She needs to know that her husband has her back. She needs to know that her husband is someone that she can lean upon when times get tough. So what does our husband, Jesus Christ, our groom, say to us, his bride? Come to me. Come to me when you're weary and burdened and I will give you rest. He says, be strong and be courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified. For the Lord your God, your groom, goes with you. He will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And again, he says, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's the kind of room we have. He supports his bride. The sixth thing is that the wife needs her husband to think of her as beautiful. It's the husband's job to make his wife feel like she is the catch of his life. To make sure that she knows that he appreciates her physical and intellectual and spiritual beauty. If you haven't done so for a while, I encourage you to read the Song of Songs. It's a love letter. It's pretty graphic at times, because the two lovers are talking to one another. The groom is speaking to his beloved, and and it's actually an analogy. It's an extended analogy of Christ's love for his bride, the church. And listen to how the groom speaks of his bride. He says, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no blemish in you. That's how our groom thinks about us. We're not the ugly stepsister he is stuck being married to. Number seven, 
A wife needs her husband to be her best friend. And what a friend we have in Jesus, our groom. Jesus says, no longer do I call you servant, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I call you friend. Yes, we're his friend. We're his bride, but we're his friend. No greater love is there than this, that someone will lay down his life for his friend. Jesus, our groom, laid down his life for us. And our friend, Jesus Christ, never tires of being with his bride, for he promises, I'll be with you always until the very end of the age. And then a wife needs her husband to step up as a father for her children. She wants to know that her husband loves her children. Jesus, you see, he, he loves the children of his bride. I mean, he shapes and he forms our children in the womb, doesn't he? Jesus, our groom, delights in having our children in his presence. He says, let the little children, let your little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus, our groom, is concerned about our child's eternal well-being. For he says, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. So our groom, Jesus Christ, loves not only us, but he loves our children too. And he desires that they would also be And then finally, we get to the ninth point. A wife needs intimacy with her husband. That is, the manifestation of deep love between two people. And that brings me to the fourth point, the fourth major point that Paul makes in our text when he writes in verses 30 to 33, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. <clears throat> Our groom, Jesus Christ, has entered into a most intimate relationship with us. And how did he do it? By dying on the cross. Because Jesus, our groom, was willing to die on the cross, we are justified. We are reconciled to God. You know those irreconcilable differences that we thought could not be overcome because of our sin? Well, they're no longer irreconcilable because God's Son, Jesus, our groom, died for our sins. And he has now invited us, and he has not only invited us, but he has made it possible for us to live in a relationship with him, the most intimate of all relationships because it is a relationship of blood. His blood shed for his bride, for you. In this intimate relationship established with us in time in holy baptism. He might sanctify his bride, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. As I mentioned before, our baptism is like a wedding ceremony. It's on that day that Jesus, our groom, comes and he says, I wed myself to thee. You are mine. You are my bride. And he has created faith in our heart 
And it's this faith bonds us with our groom. John Gerhard, a Lutheran father of the faith, writes, It is by faith alone that we are partakers of this blessed spiritual union. As it is written, I will betroth thee unto me in faithfulness. By faith we are engrafted as branched into Christ, the spiritual vine, so that we derive all of our life and strength from him. And as those united in marriage are no longer twain but one flesh, so he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit, because Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. So Christ our groom dwells in our hearts through faith. And then think of the intimacy that we, the bride experience with the groom when we come and receive holy communion a holy communion is taking place a holy union is taking place as Jesus the groom feeds us with the very body and blood that was shed for us on Calvary's cross that unites us to him and so the groom and the bride live in intimate communion with one another Jesus is the head and we, the church, his bride. And together, we live in communion with one another. And just as the head and the body are inseparable, so the head, Jesus Christ our groom, is inseparable to his bride, to you and me. I began this message telling the story of a preschooler who was retelling the story of Snow White to her mother. Remember? And so, Mommy, do you, know, you remember what, do you know what happened? Do you know what happened at the end of Snow White? Of course, said the mother. Snow White and the prince lived happily ever after. And the little girl quickly corrected her and said, what? Oh, no, Mommy. They got married. Well, this pessimism is certainly not true. For Christ's marriage, his bride, to us. We, the bride of Christ, have the perfect groom. We have the perfect husband, and his name is Jesus Christ. And what's more, in the life to come, with Christ as our heavenly bridegroom, and we, his bride as the church, we truly will live happily ever after. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all our understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.